This evening, we're turning back to our study through Revelation. The the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, 30 through 31, writes, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, tonight we're going to begin seeing exactly how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the living God when he decides that the time has come for him to release his divine wrath upon humanity. As we turn to our series in Revelation, we're approaching the the part that really is most familiar in this book, the, the time of the tribulation judgments. We believe that by this point in the book, the church is removed from, from the earth through the rapture. And we're looking at what will be the, the last event in church history before the Lord Jesus Christ sets up his eternal, or well, not his eternal, his millennial kingdom, which comes before eternity. John's book is composed of a number of sections, and, and we're in the largest at this point. Uh, the section began in chapter 4. As we discussed, as we looked at chapters 4 and 5, those initial scenes that John had there, they they served as a backdrop that we are to put the the judgments against. They're they're an extended vision that serve for the coming judgments so that we have a context for them. Really, you, you could even say that everything to this point in the letter has been a backdrop to the judgments. In the first three chapters, John's told to give the, the revelation he's about to receive to specific churches, and, and he wrote those short addresses then to the seven churches that were to receive it. That, and in those seven addresses, if you remember, in each case, the churches were encouraged to be overcomers. The, the individuals within the churches were to be overcomers. And they were to remain faithful in their spiritual struggles uh, faithful for Christ, and they would be faithful till the very end. That's what an overcomer is. As we enter this current vision, John had that glimpse then of God sitting on his throne, the the sovereign ruling over his creation. He, He was receiving praise from exalted representatives of his creation. Last week, when we looked at chapter five, John saw one who had overcome the one who had overcome perfectly, the the risen Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, standing there before God the Father on his throne because of of his accomplishments, because he is the overcomer, he alone was worthy to take the scroll that that God the Father had and execute whatever was sealed up within that scroll. It was for his worthiness as, as mankind's redeemer that he was the one that would receive praise and worship from all creation as he showed his overcoming victory by taking or having the right to take that scroll. And that brings us to our chapter this evening. We're in chapter 6, as you can see on the screen. Let's begin looking at our text. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals... Those words I saw, we encounter those several times in the last chapter. Those are words that tell us that John's vision, this extended vision that covers this whole large section, this, his vision is shifting once more. Every time you see those words I saw, it's like John's looking at a different place. His, his gaze is being captivated by something else. He's zooming in on some aspect to study more further. He's zooming out to see more broadly. In this case... It shifts, and he zooms in on the lamb 
that was standing in front of the throne. The last thing he had seen was all of creation worshiping the, the lamb and, and the one seated on the throne. Now he zooms back in on the lamb himself standing in front of the throne and John sees him break the first of the seven seals that have that scroll sealed up. Now I'm going to pause right there for a couple of minutes and, and, and talk about this a little bit. John sees our Lord begin to open the scroll that he had received from the Father and begin breaking these seals one after the other. Most, most likely you, you all are aware of that there will be judgments released as the seals are broken. I don't think I'm giving away the plot at this point. That, that's not too much of a spoiler. We know that judgments will come. One of the things that's most well known about Revelation is there's three series of judgments. Um, they're usually called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Uh, for obvious reasons as we go through. Um, for example, as you break the seals, you have the seal judgments. They're, they're not named real cleverly that way. They're, there's reason for it. What is not obvious is how these series of judgments fit together. How, and then as they fit together, these three series, how do they relate to the overall time period covered by this book, especially these events here of the tribulation? It's generally accepted that the judgments overall describe the seven-year period we call the tribulation, that the, the seven years uh, of extreme judgment. There, there's a general consensus that's what's covered, but there's no general consensus as to how each of the judgment series fits into that seven-year period. I, I would not want to even begin trying to calculate the number of interpretations that have been proposed over the centuries as, as the church has studied John's letter and tried to fit these series into the seven years. There, there are many questions, and, and there are many suggested answers to those questions, and, and when you start putting that together, the, the number of permutations result in differing interpretations at some level is, is extremely high. When we think about the three sets of judgments, the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, there are two main approaches to their inner relationship, and, and that's why I want to make sure we understand there's two main ways people say these three series fit together within the seven years. One view uh, assumes that the series are sequential. In other words, you have the seven seals. There's seven in each of these, just, again, no, not much of a spoiler, but there's seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. And, and one view assumes they're sequential, that the, 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 the one just series comes after the other in a sequential way. And, and there's various suggestions as to how these three series then line up over the seven calendar year. You know, where do they squish into the seven years? But all the proponents of, of this approach assume a sequence to the series. The second main view, which frankly is the one I believe that fits the interpretation or, or the information that we'll see the best, is that there's an overlap to the series, that, that they, they stack up. The, the best way that I think to describe this view is to think of like a, um, a multi-power zoom lens or, or a microscope that has multiple lenses that at the lowest power you, you can see more of the object, but you can't see it as clearly. And then you increase the power and you zoom in on the object. You can see more detail, but less scope. And the further you zoom in, the more minute detail you can make out, but the less field division you have, the less uh, surrounding area. 
I think that's the way these three series fit together. I believe the three sets of judgments all end at the same point in time, the end of the seven-year period. I think they all end at the time when Christ comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The, the first series, the, the sealed judgments that, that we're starting to look at this evening, they cover all seven years. They, they start at the beginning and they cover the entire seven years. When the last seal is broken, though, we, we don't have a final judgment. In fact, we'll see when we get that, and, if, and we, get, we won't get to it tonight. It'll be, Lord willing, a couple weeks out, not too far in the future. But when the seventh seal is broken, we don't actually have a judgment. What I believe happens when the, the seventh seal is broken, what happens is we actually zoom in another level and, and we see that the last seal is actually a series of judgments. We start looking more carefully at that final event and we see it's made up of a number of events. And those events comprise the seven trumpet judgments. They covered the time period of that last seal. Same thing happens when you come to the seventh trumpet. When you get to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet John suddenly zooms in again and, and looks at that last, what he expected to be the final judgment, and he finds there's actually a series of judgments there when you look closely. So it's because we keep zooming in at the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, they all end at the same time. They're all ending at the, the end of the tribulation period. The seventh seal actually contains the seven trumpets, that the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. And so they all will end up coming to an end at the same point. The end, they, they give us the events of the tribulation period, and as we get closer and closer to the end, we zoom in and see more and more detail. Like I said, there are a lot of options that have been suggested for unraveling all the things that are coming at us with, with the coming chapters of the, the book. There, there's a more than I can even begin to, to comprehend. Um, I want to assure you that up front that, that we're not going to chase all the possible options. I won't even give you all the possible options. Frankly, I don't think I know all the possible options. No matter how much you read, you'll keep finding new ones, it seems like. I'm not even going to chase all the possible options or all the options that I might mention along the way. In general, I'll just tell you up front that, that I believe something is... is a choice I'm comfortable with. This is my interpretation of it. And if I can almost assure you, if you've studied Revelation before, there'll be some point in time that if you've listened to someone else or you have notes from somewhere in your study Bible or even your own opinions, there's going to be some differences in, in what I lay out here. Um, if you want to discuss it with me, I'm happy to do that. But I'll, I'll also warn you up front that... Um, any discussion we have won't have a whole lot of passion on my part. I, this is what I believe, but I hold it very loosely in, in, in most of these cases. There, I think in recent years, too many people have spent too much time trying to unravel every event, all the details of the event. There's been enormous amounts of time that has been wasted on prophecy conferences, for example, trying to map current events into the events that are predicted in this book. The simple fact that the church has been unable to explain clearly these events over the course of millennia now tells us God in his wisdom did not give us enough information to understand all of this. Yet chasing the details too often causes us to miss the, the overall point that John is making in his visions. There, there, there is power in these images. 
As one commentator, I, I believe he rightly expressed it, he, he says, visions at best are to be experienced rather than analyzed. Those who approach Revelation with a sympathetic imagination are most apt to understand its true meaning. In other words, what he's trying to say is John, under the inspiration, has given us pictures that should captivate our imagination so that we comprehend how dire these judgments will be and how glorious God's glory will be. Our our imagination should be filled up, but our imagination isn't going to find precise um, details. And and the more we try to to mine exactly what some element means, the the more we miss the, the... impression that we're to have. My goal as we go through this is to excite our imaginations. I want us to feel what God is communicating to us through, through John's vision. We're, we're about to enter into the revelation of divine judgments of our greatly offended God. Re- remember, the, the offenses against our God were so great that it required the sacrifice of his own son for him to justly consider his wrath satisfied. That's how offended our God is. His son had to die so that God could consider his wrath satisfied toward you and I. What must it look like when his wrath is unsatisfied? If his wrath is so extreme that his son had to be put to death, what does it to be satisfied? What does it look like when he's unsatisfied? We should anticipate that any glimmer of God's unsatisfied wrath is going to be terrible indeed. So as we turn back to the text, the the first four seals are naturally grouped together. We we group them under the heading of the four horsemen, and and we'll see there's obvious reasons. Um, We will not spend a lot of time looking at each judgment as we go, but, but we will take them one at a time. Looking at verse 1 again, John writes, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As the first seal is broken, we have the first judgment. I'm calling the first judgment, seal one, the, the, the world power judgment. It's the world power. One thing that, that's quite noticeable as, as we begin reading through these judgments is that nothing is ever directly read from the scroll. Remember, we were told that the scroll had writing on the front and back. It was filled up to overflowing. But if the seals are broken, things happen. We never have any read this. It's clear that the events that John described, they they correspond to the portion of the scroll that that is exposed as the seal is is broken, and then as he starts to unroll the contents. But but John's vision is much more intense than than even a a graphic novel. You know, we have today graphic novels that try to picture things for imagination. No, this is way more intense than that. The action just pops out of the scroll. As he opens it, things occur. As John breaks this first seal. One of the four living creatures, one of those exalted angels that we saw nearest the the throne of God, the one that's dwelling in God's holiness, it it cries, this being, this angel, it cries out with a loud voice, come. And immediately this first horseman appears. 
Of course, we call the man John sees a horseman because he's riding on a horse. That's where the name comes, the four horsemen. They're, they're all riding on horses. In this case, the horse is white. In each case, it'll be the color of the horse that the focus is on. The, the color of the horse being white has led some students of the Bible to conclude that the rider is Jesus. Since when we get to chapter 9, Jesus, when he does return at, at the end of the tribulation period, he comes riding on a white stallion or white horse. I, pr- I am confident this view is mistaken. I, I cannot see this being Jesus. It's incongruent for one thing to have Jesus breaking the seals and then directly acting in the event generated, plus that the crown that this rider has on his head is a different kind of crown than what Jesus wears in, in chapter 19. This crown is one that, as, as we look at, he is given this crown that indicates there's one of higher authority. He's under the authority of, this, of a sovereign that he ultimately smits. As well as this rider in the next three, they're, they're all manifestations of judgment the, uh, falling on the earth. I, I think the best way to understand this first rider is that in some sense he personifies what's about to happen. He personifies the, the manner of the forces of the Antichrist in this case. The, these forces that, that rise to power at the very beginning of the tribulation period. The, the Antichrist is someone who Satan uses ultimately to masquerade as the Messiah. We'll, we'll see him become more and more of a player as we go. But even before he's known, his forces begin to rise to power. And initially, he'll rise to power through rather peaceful means. The, the governments of the world will begin to consolidate around this one leader. And that's probably what we see going on here in the contents of this first judgment as we're at the very beginning of the tribulation period. His conquering is largely political at first. And we need to recognize that, that the Antichrist's rise to power is not truly his victory. It's the beginning of God's judgments upon the world. The Antichrist is not winning. He's being used by God to judge. Any relative peace that that comes at the very beginning here is soon shattered as the Lord breaks the second seal. And seal number two produces war. Look at the verses. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another red horse went out. Uh, Another, a red horse, went out. And him who sat on it, it was granted to take the peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Again, it's the shout of one of the angels that that we see living near the throne that, that marks the beginning of this second event as that seal's broken. Come, he yells again. If you're a student of history at all, one of the, the things that's most astounding is, is how quickly when World War I began, Europe was engulfed by, by the war. If you study history, you, you see that, that countries in Europe went from postures of relative peace to all-out war in, in a month's time frame. Well, here we see as this man astride this red horse gallops forth, war sweeps across the globe. The, the color of the horse uh, aligns with the bloodshed that, that flows as, as war progresses over the earth. War, worldwide warfare breaks forth, and there's a great amount of, of bloodshed as people slay one another in combat. Again, this is another act of divine judgment unfolding. Yet, uh, you've got to believe for those engulfed by it, 
they're going to think that the world has simply gone insane. The world's gone mad. That's the thing that everybody kept saying about World War I. The world's gone mad. Well, the world will look like it's gone mad again if God begins to pour out the second judgment upon the earth. In verse 5, the, the Lamb opens the next seal. Seal 3 is famine. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard someone like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So this third horseman here rides forth. He's on a black horse, and this horse represents famine, or this, this rider represents famine. How do we know it's famine? Well, we know it because this horseman carries this scale, a, a balance, used to measure out goods in the day, a scale that, that balances goods on one side and, and weight on the other. And a voice calls out, announcing the prices of, of common staples of the day, wheat and barley. The price listed is a denarius, a, a coin that was the equivalent of a day's labor in John's time. A denarius for a common laborer, a common laborer would earn a denarius a day, per day. And, and that amount, that full day's wage, was only enough for a man to buy enough wheat for one person's daily food of wheat, or enough barley for three persons. Now, barley is a lower quality grain for food purposes. It's not typically used, if anything, for human consumption. It's used to stretch flour. So in John's day, scholars have told us this would represent a price 10 to 12 times higher than what would be considered a normal price for wheat or barley. Prices have gone up. Great inflation, striking quickly. This kind of inflation of food stuff, it, it comes when famine strikes a city. It's not surprising to find famine in the midst of warfare, is it? There, there's many reports coming out of the Ukraine right now about how foodstuffs are rapidly becoming scarce. And, and food, as it becomes scarce for people, is causing the prices of the little bit that remains to, to rise exponentially. When, when supply lines are cut off and, and when buildings are destroyed and, and, and everything that would use to be storing food, famine sets in quickly. Yet, think about the fighting in Ukraine, as, as extreme as it is right now, it is very localized. Just imagine when the entire world is engulfed in something similar. The, the famine will approach uh, uh, rapidly and it will cause a global catastrophe. One thing that's interesting in, in this is the added comment at verse 6. Do not damage the oil or the wine. The, these are luxury items. And, and most likely this command to leave them alone suggests that this famine will be of limited dur duration such that the, the wealthy are unaffected. Those who, who have enough money can go through just fine. Things will get tough for the common man, but the rich will, will weather the events okay just buying their way through it. But the lamb is not finished. In verse 7, he opens another seal. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. 
Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. As things continue to deteriorate here, we see the seal of death, number four. The seal of death. Death makes an appearance of the, the fourth horseman, and, and he's pictured as bringing Hades along with him. Re- remember, Hades is the, the place of the dead in the New Testament for un, where the unbelieving dead go. In, in the New Testament, believers are absent from the body. They're present where? With the Lord. We celebrate that, right? And to be absent from body is present with the Lord. Believers go to be with the Lord, but the unbelievers... Go to Hades. It's a place where they wait for the judgment. Well, Hades is pictured traveling right along here with death. In this pair, death and Hades, they're allowed to use ongoing warfare and famine and disease, even wild animals, to ensure that one-fourth of the population at this time will die. That's a percentage that, that goes beyond our comprehension. We read it and probably move on, Stop and think about it. In our current population right now, if this were to happen today, the current population of our planet is roughly 7.9 million. We'll just round it to 8 billion people. Did I say million? Billion people. 7.9 billion people today. A quarter would mean that nearly 2 billion people are dead by the time this fourth judgment is over. In whatever short period this is, we know it's far less than seven years. I'll tell you how long I think it is in a little while. But, but in the short, relatively short time frame, two billion people. Not, not to minimize recent events at all, but, but the global COVID death toll is placed at just under six million. If you do the math, that means in today's numbers, there will be 333 times more people dead from this event than have died from COVID over the past two and a half, three years, whatever, however long you want to count COVID. So, you know, maybe you knew five people who died from COVID. That's probably about right for most of us. We don't know too many people personally who've died from COVID, but, but maybe you knew, knew five people who died from COVID. The equivalent, if you lived through this judgment, you would know 1,665 people who died. That starts to boggle your mind, doesn't it? That's the magnitude of judgments that's falling here. A quarter of the world's population will be dead. That, that number does not include those who were injured or maimed by the war. It, it doesn't include those who are sick and disabled by disease, but they're still alive. It, it doesn't include those who are living in complete misery, etching out some kind of existence during the middle of a global famine. By this point in the time of judgments, the world will be absolutely devastated. And if you think about it, from the perspective of the people going through these judgments, there's nothing that has transpired to this point that would indicate that God has directly begun pouring out his wrath. All of these things happen today. We have... Political movements, we have wars begin, we have famines happen, we have death occur. These are anticipated results that come, the kind of death we're seeing from war that leads to famine, that leads to disease. Such devastation provides the backdrop, if you think about for countless post 
apocalyptic type movies and books that you can read. These, these events are, are imaginable as far as the sequence. But the events we're reading here in, in this page, these are not figments of fantasy. The, these are not the results of man-made disasters. These are divine judgments of God as God begins to pour out his wrath throughout his creation upon creation's ultimate rebels, sinful men and women. That's what we're reading about here. The four horsemen have galloped forth, and I expect if John's readers, who have not been tied up trying to plant this all into the evening news and figure out, okay, how close are we and what's, what leads to this, I expect that John's original readers would have looked at this, and instead of calling a prophecy conference, because they've never sat through one, and they wouldn't have discussed how these things come about, rather they would have recoiled in horror at the image provoked in these first eight verses. Horsemen galloping across the, the, the face of the earth, riding as fast as a horse can travel, taking all this devastation with them. They'd recoil in horror, and so should we. Yet God's judgments have only begun. Moving on to number five. Prayer for just vengeance. If, if the sixth seal, prayer for just vengeance. Lest we, lest we lose track that the, the providential judgments uh, of the horsemen are nonetheless divine judgments, John's view shifts back to heaven. These first four, like I said, they, they can look providential or natural even in nature because we see miniature aspects of these kind of events now. Well, John's view shifts back to heaven as the fourth seal is opened. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, or I said fourth, fifth seal, uh, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. When the seal is broken, what John sees is depicted as souls under an altar in heaven, crying out for vengeance. There, there's not an actual judgment that falls on the earth in this seal, but there is a cry that such would result, that judgment would come. A quarter of the human population is gone, but there's three quarters that still represent rebels against God. These souls, we're told, are those of martyrs. Most likely, martyrs that have died during the tribulation period to this point. Men and women who have remained faithful to God throughout this, this trying testing of the first four judgments. This, this time of a great hardship. The, the fact that they're crying out to the Lord for vengeance indicates that they did not die as a result of the warfare or the disease or the, the, and, and the pestilence, things that are ravaging the earth. They died because they are believers in Jesus Christ. Their prayers for vengeance come because they died for the name of Christ. They either were the ones that were taken advantage of by those who were in extreme fear 
as all these other judgments were happening. They were the ones that suffered because they were different. Their prayers for vengeance thus become the judgment of this seal because these prayers for vengeance from a holy God will not go unanswered. That The souls are assured that God has heard them and that he will grant justice. Vengeance will come to, to those who took their lives because of their faith. For the moment, though, they would wait just a little bit longer. There are still more martyrs to come. Their number is not complete. Their cry for vengeance is building. It's growing. It's getting larger and larger, but God says it's not complete yet. That, that means that the magnitude of God's judgment has not reached its final point. His wrath is still accumulating. There, there are more martyrs to come who will also deserve his vengeance. You know, when the world treats us unjustly because of our faith in Christ, let's make sure we never think, even for a moment, that, that God is unaware or unconcerned. The response that, that these martyrs receive to their prayers for vengeance, it, it makes it clear that, that God knows. He knows about their unjust suffering. That the fact that God is accumulating the judgment so that when it comes it will be greater does not suggest that he's overlooking it. Far from that. Here we have the prayers of the martyrs crying out for vengeance. And that is judgment upon the earth. The cry of those who are looking to a holy God to set things right is judgment. Because that increases the assurance from God that judgment is coming. Seal number six. Seal number six, global catastrophes. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and freedman hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I'm not going to try to pin down all of the poetic language we see in verses 12 and 14. It is easy to envision volcanoes erupting throughout the earth and creating a lot of the catastrophes that are depicted, these various events. A lot of the language resonates to what we see in Genesis when the global flood occurred and God opened up the heavens and cracked open the deeps. So what we exactly is going on, I have no idea. It could be things like meteor showers and hurricanes occurring simultaneously with volcanoes. All kinds of stuff was clear is that aside from the arrival of Noah's flood, there is an unprecedented number of global catastrophes that are going to strike the earth simultaneously. The, the remaining population, that, that population that's trying to eke out an existence after the, the previous judgments, they are going to face calamities of unimaginable 
proportions. And while we may not know exactly what all the catastrophes are, what is clear is that the people who experience them somehow know that these are divinely generated events. There, there's no doubt in their mind that, that God is pouring out his wrath on them. There, there's no doubt that the risen lamb, Jesus Christ, is executing the wrath of God the Father. Frankly, I don't know how they know this, but they do. From, from the most powerful, influential people remaining on earth, the, the kings and the rich men, to the lowest people alive, the slaves and the free, they all know that the catastrophes are produced by divine wrath. Yet notice their response. Rather than repent of the rebellion, ra rather than bow before the God of the universe, rather than accept the salvation that's offered from the Lamb who died for their sins, they unanimously attempt to hide. They flee into caves and in the mountains and, and hide in crevices, attempting to, to hide from the very presence of God. They're rightfully fearful of the wrath of God. They, they've got that part right, but rather than, than responding to the wrath of God in repentance, they respond with ongoing rebellion, trying to hide. Now, one quick chronological note in my understanding of the tribulation period. I said I'll give you my view on things. Verse 17 here takes us to the very midpoint of the tribulation. That's where I would mark things at this time. There, there are several places in the Bible that, that make it clear that the seven-year tribulation period is split into two halves. You have two sections, and they're equal halves, three and a half years and three and a half years of that seven-year. There are also several times and several places in, in the Bible where the second half, the, the last three and a half years, they're, they're given the name the great day of the Lord. The, the great day of the Lord, the last half uh, of it, the three and a half years, that, that becomes the time of the tribulation when God's bottled up wrath that he's been accumulating, that as just as we saw at seal five there where he's told the, the martyrs, wait just a little bit longer, there's a little bit more to accumulate. The last great day of the Lord is when that wrath that's been bottled up for all of human rebellion's history is poured out upon mankind. That is poured out for that unending rebellion against the Creator and our Redeemer. I, I think that the recognition of those who are hiding from God's wrath where they say, in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. I believe that's an allusion to that long-awaited and long-feared time. That time has arrived. We've hit that mark where God has begun pouring out his wrath in the great day of the Lord, just moving into the second half. That brings us through our chapter this evening. He also brings us through the first series of, of judgments before John zooms in to a perspective on what goes on in that, that final end of as God pours out his wrath, his, his great wrath, his, everything, he lets it all loose, what will happen? There, there is not a lot of direct application for us in this chapter as, as we look at it, but I do believe there is one overall idea that is clear that we can take with us this evening. That idea is that there is no escaping the divine judgment of God. There is no escaping. The divine judgment of God 
is coming. And there is no escaping that. As our imaginations generate scenes for us from this chapter, and as we think about this truth, that there is no escaping the, the divine judgment of God, I would hope that there would be within us a few conflicting emotions. I think we should have multiple responses to this truth. One, I would hope that there is a response of horror and revulsion within us. It should stun us to think about people experiencing this kind of wrath falling upon them. If we love people at all, if we love them simply as image bearers of God, there should be revulsion as we see this kind of death and calamity and, and hardship and pain. I know we're moved now as we see pictures of what's going on in the Ukraine. Multiply that many times. There should be that kind of revulsion. And that revulsion and horror should motivate us to use every opportunity that we can find, to use every opportunity that we can generate to warn people from the wrath to come. We should be bold in our warning. There is no escaping the divine judgment of God. The only hope is to find redemption in Jesus Christ before the wrath falls. If we love the people around us, the horror and revulsion that, that is a natural instinct, a natural response to what we read here, that should drive us to warn people that that wrath is coming. And we warn them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is one emotion that should well up within us. At the same time, I think as we read this and we think about there's no escaping from the divine judgments of God, another emotion that should come up within us is, is one of hope and confidence. As we live right now for Christ, no matter what we might experience now, no matter what wrong we might experience, because we serve Christ, our God will set the record straight. He will bring judgment upon those who might do us wrong because we live for Christ. That should generate confidence, boldness, faithful service within us. Justice will be served. Vengeance will be dealt. There is no escaping the divine judgment of God. Hope and confidence is another natural response that we should have as we contemplate this truth. I think also, as we consider, there should also be joy and thanksgiving welling up within us. There should be joy and thanksgiving because we will not experience the divine judgment of God. The terrifying wrath that we read about here, that we see being poured out on those who rightly deserve it, is not what we will experience. We deserve this wrath. We deserve it because we sinned ourselves. We rebelled against our holy God, but the wrath that we rightly deserve, it's already been placed on the Lamb of God. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, took that wrath. It has been satisfied. God's wrath is propitiated. His he is placated when he looks at us. We do not have to wonder, as we see there at the end of verse 17, the question as those that are hiding from God, wondering who is able to stand. We don't have to wonder because we know that we are able to stand under this divine wrath because we are saved from it. Our Savior 
is the risen Lamb of God who was standing before the throne in chapter 5. There is no escaping the divine judgment of God, but the divine judgment of God in our case has already been borne by our glorious Savior. As we contemplate this, we should have a response of joy and thankfulness that exists right alongside the horror and revulsion and alongside the hope and the confidence. There is no escaping the divine judgment of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word. It's a difficult chapter. It's a hard chapter for us to read, a hard chapter for us to comprehend. I pray that tonight your spirit would enable us to understand and, and imagine the truth that's contained within here, that you are a God who will seek justice because you are a holy God. And as a holy God seeks justice, there will be wrath of unimaginable proportions poured out upon those who are in rebellion against you. And Father, may that reality move us tonight in every way that you desire so that we would be more faithful servants of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who took that wrath in our place. We pray this in his name. Amen.